And the scripture reading is from John 1, 1 through 5. Hear the word of our Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the Lord, the light of men, and the light shines in that darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, I don't know about you, I'm very glad to be here, I'm glad to be with you all, and I'm very excited to take the next step in entering into the Gospel of John. Uh, Last week, as you know, we tried to get an overview of the entire book of the Gospel of John. We tried to capture the outline and the structure of that book, and then also look at the purpose for why John wrote the book. Um, And we we did that for a particular reason, not just so that I could prove to you that I could grab onto all of that book and spit it out in what became an hour. Well, the reason why we did that, the reason why we sought to get that broad overview perspective of the Gospel of John, get the forest, is so that as we enter into that forest and we start looking at all the trees and the limbs and the leaves, we are able to put what we're looking at within the context of the broader scope of the gospel. If we don't do that, then what we're going to wind up doing is missing the point that John's trying to make in what he's communicating to us. And so as we begin to enter into this forest of Christ's glory, right, this forest where John is is really painting a picture of the glory of Christ that was manifested in his life and ministry, As we do that, we need to keep in mind the main focus and purpose, the main goal for which John is doing this. And as we saw last week, that's at the, towards the end of the book in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, uh, these things have been written so that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. So as we enter into this book, let's keep that in mind, and uh, if you can retain and recall all that we looked at last week, it will help you as we move forward starting today. All right, as we begin, let's pray together, ask for the Lord's blessing to be upon us, for his nearness to be with us by his spirit. Our Heavenly Father, we do approach you with uh, trembling and in faith, Lord, knowing that you are holy that you are holy and that you are righteous, you are good. Recognizing, Lord, that it's a severe thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet acknowledging that in your word you beckon us to come. Father, we would not draw near to you on our own. In our own strength or by our own goodness, Lord, we would have no hope or confidence Nothing to offer unto you to make you accept us, to make us seem pleasing in your sight. Lord, we come for two reasons. One, because you command us to come to you. And secondly, 
We come to you in the name of Jesus, pleading nothing but his blood and his righteousness on our behalf. And Father, it's because of Christ that we come now asking that you'd be with us, that your spirit would be known among us, that the word of God, the word that you've given, would be made alive in our hearts and minds, and that we would know you in spirit and in truth and worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, knit our hearts together in love by your truth and help us love and worship and honor and praise you more fully to the rest of this day and the days ahead. In the name of Jesus Christ, Father, would you accomplish these things for his glory and for our good. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we are entering into this opening section in the Gospel of John. And what we're looking at right now is often, well, it's the beginning of what is often called the prologue of John. Uh, that consists of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Now, many would identify that as the introduction of the book. I explained a little bit last week as to why I believe the introduction of John actually extends through the end of the chapter, the end of chapter 1, and we'll look at that in the weeks ahead. But clearly, what these first 18 verses are doing is introducing us to Jesus in a very particular and specific way. We're not just being introduced to Jesus as Jesus. We're not being introduced to Jesus as the virgin-born Son of God. We are being introduced to Jesus as the eternal Word. And what we want to do this morning is ask two questions relating to that. Uh, one, we want to ask, what does it mean to call Jesus the Word? And then two, what do these first two verses of John chapter 1 teach us about the Word's relationship to God? Okay, so those two things form kind of the broad structure, the outline of our message today. All right, so John chapter 1 verse 1 opens by saying, in the beginning was the word. Now it's obvious from the context that the word is talking about Jesus, right? Does anyone dispute that? Go ahead, raise your hand if you do, so I can prove you wrong. No, it's clearly this is talking about Jesus. We see that from John chapter 1, verse 14, where the Word is identified as the only begotten who became flesh, right? And then that same person is further identified in John 1, 17 as Jesus Christ. And so we know what we're talking about when John speaks of this person called the Word, we're talking about Jesus. Now the question for us is, why does John choose to call him the Word? Or in Greek, why does he choose to use that phrase, ha-lagos? What's the point? Why not just refer to him as the son? Right. Why not just open this gospel by saying, in the beginning was the son, and the son was with God, and the son was God? But that's how he addresses Jesus in the rest of the gospel. Whenever he speaks of Jesus' relationship to the father, he always speaks of him as the son. So why address him as the word in these opening verses? This is actually the question that was gnawing on me as I was seeking to prepare to address uh, this phrase, the word. Why does John put so much weight in describing Jesus as the word, but then, following verse 14, never address Jesus as the word again? 
Well, let me say off the bat that there has been a lot of ink spilled on this issue. There have been many keyboards worn out, typing up stuff, trying to answer that question. But maybe the best place to begin is simply by recognizing that when, G when John calls Jesus the Word, he is using a metaphor. This is just actually one of many metaphors in the Bible that are used to tell us something about the nature of who Jesus is. So, for example, in Colossians 1.15, we are told that Jesus, by nature, is the image of the invisible God. Right? That is a metaphor. It's seeking to picture something to us, saying that Jesus is this physical representation, this physical manifestation of the God whom man cannot see. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory. That means he is the outshining of the splendor and the majesty of the unseen God. 1 Corinthians 1, 24, picking up on the personification of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 1 and Proverbs chapter 8, Jesus is called here the wisdom of God. Right, so all of these are, are metaphors that are being used to describe something about who Jesus is. In fact, John uses many other metaphors within this gospel itself. So in John 6, Jesus is referred to as the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. John 10, he is the door. John 15, he is the true vine. Now, Jesus is not literally any of these things. These are simply uh, figures of speech that are designed to communicate to us by way of analogy who Jesus is. So in that same way, John describes Jesus as the Word. He is using metaphorical language to tell us about Jesus in his nature. So what is it that's being communicated by describing Jesus as the Word? Does anyone want to take a guess? Well, I get some water. Apparently not. Nobody wants to be wrong, at least not publicly, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, this is, this is the word. Amen. Well, I think to understand what John is, is getting at, whenever he calls Jesus the word, you have to think about what the nature of words are in and of themselves. So what is a word? Whenever we, we communicate with one another, when we speak to one another, we use words. What are those words in and of themselves? They are the outward manifestation of internal thoughts, right? So what's going on internally, what we're thinking about, what we're analyzing, what we're comprehending internally, when we go to communicate that or share that with someone else, we use this medium called words, right? Bunch of letters strung together in a certain way to make sounds that sound like words and concepts that we know. Well, when Jesus is described as the Word, basically what that is saying is that Jesus in his essence is the outward expression of the very mind and heart of God to man. So just as we use words and they are the outward expression of our internal thoughts to everyone else, so when we say that Jesus is the Word, we are saying that Jesus is the outward expression of the very thoughts and heart of God towards us. He is God's ultimate and final self-disclosure, in other words. 
He is the complete communication of the thoughts of our Creator revealed to us in a person, the man Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became man. So identifying Jesus as the Word is meant to arrest our attention with an enormous statement about the nature of the one whom the rest of the gospel is going to present to us. When we're looking at this man, what are we seeing? When we're listening to his teachings, what are we hearing? What are we beholding when we see this man? Well, John's answer is you are seeing the very expression of the thoughts and intentions and desires of God that he wants to communicate to you. So that's what John is getting at, and I believe that's what this metaphor is designed to communicate to us, being inspired by the Spirit. What is Jesus to us? Well, he is the Word. He is the final communication of God to us. Now, even understanding that and understanding that this is a metaphor, the question still lingers, why exactly did John choose to describe Jesus in this way? Now, some say, I've heard actually a couple of you bring this up with me. Some say that John borrowed this phrase from Greek philosophy, right? Because Greek philosophers had been referring to what they called the word for over 500 years before the gospel of John was written. So there was already this thing called halagos that existed in Greek philosophy before John wrote the gospel. So it began with a man by the name of Heraclitus in the 6th century BC. It continued on through the teachings of men like Plato and Aristotle. To them, the, the logos in substance, um, as they explained it, was the reason why there was order and existence in the universe. So what brought everything about? What, what caused all things to exist? And then what caused them to exist in order? What caused them to be ordered together and functioning together? Well, they would answer and say, well, it was the Logos. Right? Now, it's important to understand for Greek philosophers, and I know we're getting into the weeds here for some of you. I get that. But it's really important to understand these things if you're going to understand what is meant by the word. Right? For these Greek philosophers, there was a problem in relation to God and creation. Does anyone want to guess what that was? Nick, you might know what that is. What was the problem between the relationship of God and, the, and his relationship to creation. He was transcendent. He was above and he was beyond creation. In fact, so far beyond creation, he could not interact with creation. Right? So he couldn't create. Right? Matter was evil. God was holy and righteous. He could not make matter without compromising his holiness and his righteousness. So how then did God create the world? How did he bring order to the chaos? Well, the Greek philosophers would say he used the logos. This impersonal force, this non-living thing that acted as a tool in the hands of God in order to create all things and bring it into order according to his will. So there's that degree of separation between God and creation. And the thing that was in between them was the logos. Okay? Now, that's a really complicated issue that I spent way too little time trying to explain to you. If you have questions about that, come and talk to me later. But this is what some people say John is doing. He's borrowing this phrase from Greek philosophy, and basically he's Christianizing it, right? He's taking a concept that was already in existence and then making it Christian, making it fit into this worldview that is now having to deal with the fact that this man named Jesus Christ has stepped on the scene, 
Now, I want to admit to you, I cannot rule out entirely that this may have been one of the reasons why John chose to use this word. Um, Jesus is, in fact, the means by which God created the world. He is the principle that gives life and order to all creation. And John could have used this word as a tool to try and evangelize others and to help them understand the truth, the things that they didn't yet realize about God. In fact, in church history, we find that that very thing happened. I don't know if you've ever heard of a man named Justin Martyr, but he was a Greek philosopher who was trained in these ideas, and he was converted to Christ by reading this opening account of the letter of John. Whenever he heard John using the word logos and continued reading what John had to say about the logos, he realized what the Greek philosophers had missed. The Greek philosopher said the logos was the principle and the reason why all things exist and are in order, but it was impersonal. And here in the Gospel of John, John tells us, no, the, the Logos is not some impersonal force. In fact, the Logos is a personal being. And he's not just a personal being out there, transcendent, far removed from us. He is a personal being that has entered into time and space and has interacted with us. John, uh, Justin Martyr reads that and understands that concept, and the Lord uses that to convert him. So I don't want to rule out the fact that maybe John was getting at something. Maybe he was trying to address the Greek philosophers when he described Jesus as the Word. I said to myself when I started today, don't say this, don't ask this question, but I'm feeling compelled. Are you guys with me? Okay, all right, okay. Now, I don't want to rule that out completely, but I think there is a better way to understand why John introduces Jesus as the Word here in the opening verses of his Gospel. And that has to do with the way that we see a shadowy figure called the Word of God appearing to us multiple times in the Old Testament. As you read through the Bible, you come to discover, especially in the Old Testament, as you read through the Old Testament, which most Christians don't do nowadays, but if you will pick up the Old Testament and you start reading through it chapter by chapter, you will begin to notice this mysterious figure that appears every now and then and communicates truth to people in the, in the world. Sometimes he's called the angel of the Lord, and his presence demands that those to whom he's speaking take their sandals off their feet because the ground is holy ground now. It's the presence of God. Sometimes he appears as a man, like the man wrestling with Jacob. And once it was all over, Jacob said, man, I've seen God face to face and yet I'm still alive. What was he saying about that man with whom he was wrestling? He recognized that he was God. Well, at other times, this shadowy figure appears under the title the word of Yahweh. And I want to show you some areas where we see that in the Old Testament. From the very first chapter of the Bible, we see that the instrument through which God made all things in this world was his word, right? Multiple times, just in Genesis chapter 1, we find the phrase, and God said. Vayomer Elohim, and God said. I know you'd appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> And then what we find is that what God says, what he speaks, immediately springs into existence. He says what he wants to come about and what happens as a result. His word produces 
what he is willing to bring into existence. And so his word is what he used to accomplish things in creation. You see this same idea repeated throughout the rest of the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 33, 6, it was by the word of Yahweh that the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Or Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what was created was not made out of things that are visible. So the word of God was the means by which God created all things. Now, as I mentioned earlier, as you move further into the Old Testament, you find that phrase, the word of God or the word of Yahweh, starting to be used as a title for what clearly seems to be a person. So in Genesis 15.1, for example, it says, The word of Yahweh came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward will be great. Now, pay attention to that. Here we find this reference to the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord. And what is the word of the Lord doing? It's coming to Abraham. Right, And the next word that we would think to hear or see written here on the page is the word of the Lord came to Abraham and it's, and it, uh, oh man, how would you say that? And this is, this is the content of it, that kind of idea, right? I'm, I think I just botched that. But you would expect to hear the word of the Lord came to Abraham and then the next thing be what that word was, right? So he spoke a word to me. And here is what it said, the word said. But that's not what we find here. What we find here is that the word of Yahweh approaches Abraham in a vision, first of all. It's not something that Abraham heard, it's something that he saw. Right? And then he's seeing this thing called the word of the Lord. And what does the word of the Lord do with Abraham? It begins speaking to him. Now, those are things that a word cannot do, but a person can do that. And so here we find this figure that is identified as, seems to be identified as the word of Yahweh coming to Abraham in a vision. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 21, uh, recounting the calling of the prophet Samuel, it says, And Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh because Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh, by the word of the Lord, by the word of Yahweh. So what was the means by which God was appearing to Samuel? Well, the means was the word of Yahweh. You see the same thing repeated multiple times in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 3.16, we are introduced to this phrase, the word of the Lord came to me and said, and then that same phrase occurs 44 times in between chapter 3 and 38 of the book of Ezekiel. And every single time, when the word of Yahweh comes to Ezekiel, it comes speaking to him, right? Performing an action. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, I just bring this out to say that we have this mysterious being called the word of Yahweh. He appears to people. He speaks to people. He declares the word of God to people. In fact, in Psalm 107, you find that he actually saves people. He delivers people. And I believe what John is doing here in the opening of the gospel is he's taking this personification of Yahweh's word in the Old Testament 
And he is stating that every single one of those appearances that we find of the Word of Yahweh in the Old Testament is actually a manifestation of the Son of God, pre-incarnate. So that person who is called the Word of Yahweh is the one that John says, we beheld in the man, Jesus Christ. You guys see that connection there? Now what this does, just as a, as a principle of application here, what this does is it provides cohesion between the revelation of God in the Old Testament and the revelation of God in the New. There's not a God as He is revealed in the Old Testament in contrast to God as He is revealed in the New Testament. You guys ever heard people speak that way? Well, that's the, that's the God of the Old Testament. That's the way God was in the Old Testament. But He's not like that anymore. That's not who He is anymore. Right? He's wrathful, angry, just, righteous in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's loving. Right? Maybe you haven't heard people say that, but I have. Well, to identify Jesus as the Word of Yahweh in the Old Testament is to tell us plainly that it has always been this person, this person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has been making God known to man from the beginning. It's always been, in other words, it's always been the Father speaking to us in this world through the person of the Son. It has always been God speaking to us and illuminating our hearts and minds to the truth of who He is through the Son, by the Spirit. The only difference between the Old Testament revelation of God and the New Testament revelation of God is one of degree. We see Him more clearly now because the Word of Yahweh is no longer a shadowy figure that appears here and there and we're not quite sure what to do with Him. He is the one who has been revealed in the flesh, the begotten Son of God who has demonstrated his glory before our eyes. And so I believe that's what John is getting at whenever he describes Jesus as the Word. He's pointing back to the Old Testament and he's saying, hey, that one who's always revealed God to us, by the way, that's always been Jesus. Now you got to put that in the context of the whole gospel. Think about all the interactions that John is going to present to us that Jesus had with the Jewish people. Think about John chapter 8, verse 58, when Jesus looks to the Pharisees and tells them, before Abraham was, I am. Think about how this fits into that message. Jesus is telling the Jewish people over and over again, listen, I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. I am the one who called you to belong to me. I am the one who redeemed you for myself. I'm the one who took you to Babylon. I'm the one who brought you out. I'm the one who rebuilt the temple through you. And now I'm the one here speaking to you as the last word from your God. Y'all don't get that. But maybe as we move forward, we're going to see more of the glory of what John's driving at here, even from this opening phrase in his gospel. So who is the Word? Well, the Word is Jesus. Why does John describe him as the Word? Well, I believe he's picking up on the Old Testament use of the Word of Yahweh and saying that was always Jesus from the very beginning. This man that we know as Jesus. Now... The opening verses of John 
John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, they're designed to introduce us to the Word by focusing on the Word's relationship to God and then His relationship to the rest of creation. Today we're going to end by looking at the Word's relationship to God. Next week we're going to come back and look at the Word's relationship to creation and to man. Mankind. All right, so... Let's notice what John says. There are three statements in John chapter 1, verse 1 that are designed to explain the relationship that exists between the Word and God. The first statement is making an emphatic statement about the Word's eternal existence. See, in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. Now, these opening words of the gospel are designed to take our minds back to the opening words of the book of Genesis, right? And they're designed to assert that even then, at the very beginning of time and space where Genesis opens, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is intending to bring our minds back to that point in order to make an emphatic declaration that even at that point, in the beginning of time and space, the word was always there. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the Word was there. And not just, not just there in the sense that He was the first among God's creation or the most exalted being that God had ever made. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. But rather that He was, even from the beginning, the one who always was. Now, this is clearly designed to emphasize the eternality of this person called the Word. That you can go back as far as you like into the history of creation, back to the very moment of the beginning of itself, and you will never find a moment in or outside of time when this person called the Word did not exist. He was always there. He always was, even from the beginning. I see this truth uh, described in other places in Scripture. For example, in 1 John 1.1, John begins describing Jesus as what was from the beginning. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things. Not he was before all things, but he is. It's a statement, an emphatic statement of just continual existence. He's always been before all things. Revelation 22.13 is one of my favorites. Jesus himself says, I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I'm the source of all things and everything's flowing back to me, is what he says. Now we're going to see this in time, but this not only emphasizes the eternal existence of Jesus as the Word, but it also emphasizes us to an important reality concerning the gospel. That this gospel that has been made known through the life and ministry, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, was not something that was new to the scene when Jesus was born from Mary. That this gospel is actually something that has been weaving its way throughout human history from the very moment of creation. I don't have time to dig into that more, but it just, it's a very important reality that we need to hold in our minds. Now, this has implications for how we understand the Word's relationship to the rest of creation. As I said, we're going to look at that next week. But it also leads to the question, how does the Word, if He has eternally existed, what does that mean for this Word's relationship to God? There's only one being who has always been, right? 
There's only one who stands outside of creation, and that is the God who made creation. We're not, we're not materialists. We don't believe in the foolishness that life just sprang up out of nowhere. Right? They've never been able to prove that. They still can't prove that, but they hate the idea of God so much that they will hold tenaciously to something they know is not true in order in their minds to debunk this idea that they don't want to believe is true. Right? We're not materialists here. There's only one source of all life and being and existence in the universe, and that is the God who, who exists in and of himself. The only one who is self-existent, the only one who is all-powerful, the only God whose goodness and grace has overflowed in the, in the explosion of bringing all of creation into existence. Right? It's not only that we exist, it's that we exist in this world that is so marked by the goodness and the grace of God. All things working together so intimately and intricately, right? This God has, 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 has given expression to himself through creation from the very beginning, but the one thing we know about this is that there's only one God who created all things. So in saying that the word always was, even from the beginning, what is John asserting about the word's relationship to God? Well, he answers that in two ways in this opening verse. First of all, he answers that by, by saying that the eternal existence of the word was an existence that was with the Father. Okay? Now we've, listen, shake your head, crack your neck, stretch your arms, get that blood flowing, <gasps> right? Just as James is teaching us in the Sunday school class, like, wake up. I know we've been talking about a lot of things already. I've probably overwhelmed your minds with just things, with facts, statements, whatever. But you need to pay attention to what this is talking about right here. So if you didn't get anything else that we've talked about so far, wake up now and pay attention. John begins answering this question about how the word relates to the eternal God by saying that in his existence, he was always with God. You see that in that verse, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Now the word has existed from all eternity, according to John. That's yet to be proven. He's gonna prove that throughout the rest of the gospel. But right now he's making a statement. The word has existed from all eternity according to John, but he was not alone in that existence. The word existed eternally with God. Now the word here for with is very, very intriguing. Normally it communicates the idea of being toward something. So when you use the word pros, in relation to an object, what you're really communicating is that you are facing that, that object. So I am currently, right now, I am pros you all. I am towards all of you, right? Face to face, got that kind of communication interaction. Maybe it would have been better to use a TV in that, in that context because when this word appears in relationship to two persons, it is talking about a face-to-face -face intimacy 
that the two are enjoying. So, for example, this word is used in Romans 5.1 to describe our relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That by his blood, by his righteousness, because of his resurrection and ascension, that we as believers, we are those who believe in him, we now have peace with God. That's not describing an, an object that God is giving us. It's not as though he gave us peace Right? So, so often people speak of having peace as something, I have peace with myself, or I have peace with how things are going. That's not exactly what's, what's, what's going on here. What this is describing is the condition of the relationship that we have with God. That we have a relationship with Him that is utterly and completely defined by peace. No disruption. In that same kind of relational capacity, that's how the word is being used here in John 1.1. It's highlighting that there was a relational intimacy between the Word and God that has been from all eternity. Now that means that though the Word was eternally existed, as I said earlier, He did not exist eternally alone. He has been from all eternity and has enjoyed the blessing of existing in a personal relationship with God. And we see that in this Gospel account itself. John 1 Verse 18 describes this relationship with God with the terms Father and Only Begotten, or God and Only Begotten God. That is communicating something of this intimate relationship that exists between these two persons. John 17, verse 5, it tells us that this eternal relationship between these two persons was one of shared glory. When Jesus says, Father, I glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That before the world was, just a, a reference to before anything ever existed, Jesus is saying very clearly here that he lived in relationship with the Father that was defined by shared glory. And you remember from Isaiah 43, I believe, the Lord says that he will share his glory with who? With no one. And yet here Jesus says, I shared glory with him. John 17, 24, it tells us that this relationship between the Word and God, Jesus and the Father, was a relationship of love. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, John's going to show all of these things in many different ways as we walk through the gospel. He's going to show how the Son existed in a relationship of love and fellowship with the Father from all eternity. But here he's simply making a statement that this was indeed a fact. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible for someone to exist from all eternity in an eternal relationship of love and shared glory with God? Well, John says in that final phrase, it's only possible if that person himself is God. The word not only eternally existed with God, but he eternally existed as God. John says, and the word was God Kaitheos and halagos. 
The Word was God. Now, the reason that the Word could be eternally existing before creation with God is because in His nature, the Word is God. Now, these words have been referred to as the building blocks of the doctrine of the Trinity. Why do we hold to the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, for starters, because of what we are told right here in this verse. Here in this verse, we have two persons who are described with the word word and with the word God. We're told in this verse that they exist eternally side by side with one another in an intimate relationship. And then we are told that they also share in this nature that is God. One commentator described this as the world's most economical articulation of the everlasting relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Now, this verse has been misunderstood and abused for centuries. Um, One example of that from church history is Sabellianism, which is the modern day uh, form of, or the modern day form of Sabellianism would be modalism, if you're familiar with oneness Pentecostals. They would hold to this. They teach that when it says the word was with God and the word was God, that this is actually referring only to one person, that there's one person being spoken of here. One person who simply manifests himself in different ways, right? That there is no father, there is no son, there is no spirit. It is simply the same and one only divine person manifesting himself in these different modes, So they might give an example. I'm a husband, I am a father, and I am a son, right? I function in those different ways in relation to other people, but I'm still the same person, right? I don't become someone else whenever I act as a father than as when I act as a husband. I'm the same person operating in different ways. That's what they would say that God is like. God is not a trinity, He is simply one person acting in these very different ways. Now, that idea is debunked by that middle phrase of John 1.1. The beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Just to state the obvious, a person literally cannot have fellowship with himself. It literally goes against the definition of the Word. In order to have fellowship, you have to have fellowship with another person. And in order to have fellowship with another person, that requires another person. So, and in fact, I think that that's the point of John in restating this in verse 2, that he, this one, was in the beginning with God. Now, there were others in the third century who taught that when it says the word was God, it simply means that the word was a God. And the modern day expression of that would be Jehovah Witnesses, Right? That he was a God, not in the same sense that the other person in this verse is called God, but he was God in a lesser sense. Arius would be the example that I'm thinking of here. The Arian controversy in the 3rd and 4th century of the church that extended uh, for centuries afterward. But the way that John wrote this verse makes very clear that that's not what he is saying. And uh, I'm laughing right now because I wrote this phrase. I don't want this to sound too complicated. Um, Maybe I've already done that. But in order to understand what this verse is saying, it's really important just to know two things about the word God as it appears in this verse, in the last section of this verse. First of all, 
The use of God in the last section of this verse does not have an article attached to it in Greek. And then secondly, it appears before the verb of the sentence. Now, for those of you who are Greek geeks like me, that's called a Caldwell construction. Okay? Now, for the rest of us, what that is simply saying is, in this last phrase, John is not saying that the word was the God that he was talking about in the second phrase. He is simply saying that the word shared in the same essence of God as the person who is mentioned in the second phrase. So he says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with, in Greek, the God. And God was the word. What John is saying is the essence of the word is shared in Godness with this other person he's just called God. Two different persons, but both sharing in the same essence. Okay? All right. I think Daniel Wallace wrote something very, to explain this, he wrote, wrote this very well. The construction that the evangelist chose to express this idea was the most concise way he could have stated that the word was God and yet was distinct from the Father. And so John constructed this sentence the only way that could highlight the fullness of the word's deity, while at the same time maintaining the distinctness of the word's person within the deity, within the Godhead. So the word eternally existed, but as a co-equal and co-eternal person with this other person called God. See on your faces, you guys are just enamored and intrigued by this. He was distinct from him, and yet he is an equal sharer with him in all of his divine attributes. His eternality, his self-existence and aseity, his power and wisdom and glory, all that makes God God was equally shared between these two persons mentioned here in John 1.1. All right. Now, all of this... From the, from the opening line of this gospel, what we have looked at, what is clear is that we are being confronted with the reality of the Trinity. That though the Holy Spirit, even though the Holy Spirit is not discussed here, there are two persons here who are both equally described as God, and yet they are distinct from one another. Equal, co-eternal, eternally existing in mutual fellowship with one another. Now, all of this is going to come up multiple times in the gospel, and so we're going to have other opportunities to unpack more of what this is saying about Jesus. But for now, I want to end simply by pointing out that from the very opening verse of this gospel account, John is making one point very clear. He's making clear that there is no possible way to truly know God if you do not know him in relation to the person called the Word. In other words, you cannot worship God who has always been from before creation if your conception of who God is is not radically infused with thoughts of Christ. That's what he is setting up here from the opening verse of the Gospel. He is simply trying to communicate to our minds that there has never been a time in human history, in time or even outside of time, before creation, there has never been a moment in God's being when we could envision God as being anything other than connected with this person called the Word. 
You cannot contemplate the Father without having a deep contemplation focused on the Son. You cannot serve and worship and honor and praise and glorify and love the Father unless all of your serving and worshiping and honoring and praising and glorifying and loving is intensely focused on the Son as it is on the Father. This is the meaning of John 5, verses 22 through 23, where Jesus says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. See, in fact, John says, the Father, he does not, or the person who does not honor the Son in this way, does not honor the Father who sent the Son. Now, this has direct application to Muslims. This has direct bearing upon Jehovah Witnesses. This has direct bearing on the cult of Mormonism. But it also has direct bearing upon us as Christians. Sometimes in, in prayer, I hear believers asking this question. Whenever I pray, am I supposed to pray to the Father alone in the name of Jesus by the Spirit? Or, or is it okay? Can I pray to the Son too? Can I pray to the Holy Spirit as well? What is, my, what is my fellowship with the triune God supposed to practically look like? Or, or whenever I sing songs of praise, am I singing unto the Father alone or am I singing unto the Son also? Am I singing unto the Holy Spirit? Man, Baptist circles, we've lost the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, haven't we? But, but, but so many have these questions. What is my, what is my worship unto God supposed to look like? Well, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and John chapter 5, verse 23 tells us that if we are not worshiping and praising and singing to the Son with the same vigor and the same love and with the same degree of faith as we would direct toward the Father, then we are not giving any honor to the Father at all. See, the Father exalts the Son so that all of our worship of God would be directed toward and flow through the Son. These first two verses of John explode with implications of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the special love that exists between them. Things that we'll obviously unpack later <coughs> in the gospel. But it also explodes with implications about how we are to understand and worship our God. We realize in realizing who the Son is in relation to the Father, that He is in His person the Word, He is the outward expression of the internal thoughts of God, then we clearly understand what the Father is saying to us when we listen to the Word speak. We hear the Father saying to us, this is my final word to you, and if you will not listen to Him, I have nothing else to say. And understanding that Jesus is the Word who has eternally existed within a loving and glorified relationship with the Father, that really has direct bearing upon how we are to relate and interact with the Son. If the Father was satisfied to exist eternally in a relationship of love and glory with the Son, then what more ought to satisfy us than being caught up in a relationship of love and glory with the Son. Are you 
with the words of Colossians 2.8, are you one who has been captivated by Jesus Christ? It says in verse 9 of Colossians 2 that all the fullness of deity dwells in Him bodily, and in Him you have been made complete. Do you sense the completeness of your soul as you draw near to Jesus? Because that's what, it's, that's what He is sent to do. That the, the one that Isaiah 42 describes as the one in whom the Father's soul delights. He was sent down into this world so that you and I would throw off our petty delights of sin and selfishness and vain glory and actually delight ourselves in the object of the Father's delight. Jesus, are you captivated by Him? Do you delight in Him? Are you obeying the Father's will by beholding Him and believing in Him? Loving Him and serving Him. And this also helps us understand that if we're truly going to worship and glorify God, then we must worship and glorify God in His Son. The one who is... (laughs) The one who was from the beginning. The one who is preeminent over all creation. He is to be preeminent in our own hearts and minds. So as we enter into this Gospel of John, the question that's confronting us is, how are we relating to Jesus right now? Do we see Him in the glory of being the Word? Are we following Him in light of that glory? That will be what we constantly are approached with as we continue walking through this Gospel. Now, would you pray with me and ask the Lord to bless His Word to us. Father, So often we, we, we aim for the distance and the long jump, Lord, and we find ourselves stumbling as we go to jump. But God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the truth it tells us about your son. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that is able to take that word and drive it deeply into the, the very depths of our souls, and cause faith to spring up. Lord, I pray that you would work that in us, believer or unbeliever, that the Word who is from the beginning, the Word who is with God, the Word who was God, that that Word would captivate us, Lord. That we would see Him in His glory as we move forward. Father, we ask for this grace And it is indeed a grace from your hand. We ask it in Jesus' name, for the sake of the word. Amen. Amen. Hear the benediction from 1 John 5, verses 11 through 12. And the witness is this, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have that life. May those of you who know the Son go and rejoice in the life He's given. May those of you who do not know the Son run to Him that you may find life. Amen. May you go in the peace of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.